What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. All right, welcome back for another episode. Uh, it's Devin Walker here, excited to be here. What's up, world? What's up, world? It's your boy, Javier. Big Hive in the building. And we have a fabulous, distinguished guest with us today, Thais Moore. She does, she does incredible work at UT. She runs the Fearless Leadership Institute. She's the founder of this organization. And they bring together Black and Latino women ultimately women of color, and they do a lot of shit, a lot of leadership development, spiritual development. They uh, take them a bribe. She'll tell you more about the programs. They're incredible. She is from the great city of Los Angeles, California, went to UCLA, where she majored in African-American studies and English. Most recently, she got her master's in human dimensions of organizations in 2018. She is a published author. She wrote a book called A Syllabus for Black Women. And on her interest, personal notes, she likes to get dominated in volleyball whenever she com competes against me. And that's one of her favorite pastimes to do. But she is also uh, really good at theater. You know, she wants to, uh, eventually, she used to have a theater and acting company. She might do it again. We don't know. Clearly a dynamic and talented woman. Thank you for being on the show with us, Ms. Thais. How'd you feel about that intro? I loved it all except for the volleyball part. That was not the truth. In fact, Devin hated getting beaten, beat by my team. So he came in and mixed up my team and put some people who don't even know how to play on my team. That's why we started losing. So every year we, when we go abroad, right, we'll play some sort of basketball game or volleyball game. So in 2014, we're in South Africa and we played volleyball. And her and her family, Dr. Moore and her kids, they were they went undefeated. They were dominating everybody in volleyball. And wait, and mind year, you, my, my, my kids were 8, 10, and 11 at the time. That's it? That's it. <laughs> Just so y'all know. <laughs> so then we go to China the following year. And I've been scheming all year about how to get a dub. And, and really, we play really just to, to build community amongst the students, to have a little bit of fun. So we're playing another volleyball game over some uh, were they tennis. They were tennis courts, right? We were playing on a tennis court. <laughs> and uh, they were dominating again. But then some other people came. Some other of our students wanted to come join. And I seen this one girl. She didn't look like she knew how to play at all. So I put her on Thais's team. And Thais damn near lost it. She was banging on her. I told her to get off the court. If she ain't going to play to win, then why not play at all? Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I'm really loving and caring, but when it comes to, like, volleyball, I don't have time to play. And it's so funny because one year in South Africa, some girls came up to me just before we had our volleyball tournament, and they were like, Miss Tice, we just love you. We love how you talk to your children. You're so sweet. And we wish our mom would talk to us like that. And then after the volleyball game, they were like, oh, she's not like that we thought at all. Because I was like, <laughs> Thais, you told me when we were playing volleyball that I was being too rough with the with the opponents. Leave them alone. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> you came at that one point foul. You was like, no, 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 no. 
<laughs> oh, I forgot. We all joined the volleyball team last year. Yeah. I mean, this podcast ain't about volleyball, though. <laughs> we want to talk about, we can, we just go off a little bunny trail. We do want to talk about uh, your experiences abroad, your experiences with your family, your kids. You mentioned that there were 8, 10, and 11. They've been to so many different countries. But then also your work with Fly and specifically the program Fly Around the World. But to get us started, can you just tell us, is there an experience that you've had internationally that really that really speaks to you when you think about all the different places you've gone, everything that you've done? Um, yeah, I would say the first experience in China was probably the most eye-opening. So... My husband went ahead of us, and he was gone for 10 days ahead of us. So we were coming, me and my children were coming for the last three weeks. And mind you, that at the time, they were seven, eight, and nine. And I was with them the whole time by myself. So being like a single parent, finishing off school. So I was already worn out before the trip even got started, trying to pack everything, knowing that China doesn't have all the foods and snacks that that age would want. So trying to pack like just granola bars and, you know, on top of everything else, right? So by the time we got to the airport, I was pooped. Then we, so I think we stopped in LA overnight to visit my family. And then we went to Vancouver and then over on to China. So we get off the plane in China and, you know, the kids are looking, my three kids are looking to me to lead the way, but all the signs are in uh, Mandarin. And I, these people are just passing me, getting on trams, going here, you know, going to get their baggage, but I didn't understand any of it. And so I remember just standing there with all my kids and all like our carry-on luggage and they were like where do we go mommy and I just stood there and I was like oh I just started sobbing like we just stood there in the airport probably for like 20 minutes with me just crying and being lost and knowing I'm supposed to be the mom but I couldn't direct this yeah so so what happened how'd you you get out of the situation I had to get it together like (laughs) Like nobody was offering to help. And even if they could, we didn't speak the same language. So I had to like realize Thais looked deeper right beneath the Mandarin. There's a little bit of English. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, English is like global, right? So I was like, oh, okay, get it together. And I finally found which train to get on. I think we went the wrong way the first time, right way the second time. And then when we came through the part where the people can greet you with the signs, Leonard was standing there, my husband, him and Dr. Chu, I believe. Or was it... um, um, the other, what's the other guy's name? Charles. Uh, Dr. Uh huh. And so I was just so relieved to find them and, and see them. But then when we got into the city, of course, it was just, it was very hectic trying to like cross streets even because the cars are coming from, the cars don't care about pedestrians, right? So we're thinking if we step out into the street, they're going to stop. No, we like we almost got murdered over and over again. So that trip was probably the most exhausting, trying to bring around three little kids. They weren't used to seeing black people. And so I remember we went to the zoo while we were there. And while me, we're, me and my family are taking pictures of the animals, the Chinese people were taking pictures of us. And I was like, no, we're not a part of the exhibit. And then especially my one daughter, she's a little bit darker and she had braids. And so I would, I would look around and she was gone. They had snatched her from my family. She was in a whole group of pictures over here and over there and I'm like you know I had to watch out for my child because they love snatching I was like no you don't just grab somebody's child but you know we were okay it was fun yeah and it's it's an interesting experience right I think especially for a lot of the darker skinned students who go to China with us mm-hmm. they in many ways they get excited and people want to touch them take pictures of their hair sometimes unfortunately for some of the women they've been their bodies have been touched um on the trip that I led last year but I'm wondering how do you 
how do you help make sense of that experience for your children? Because in some ways it can be confusing because they're like, they want to take pictures of you. They want you to hold their babies. They're like, want to touch you. So it, in some way it almost could be flattering, but then yeah. it's also a bit exploitative and exotifying. So like, how do you make sense of that for them? Oh, um, yourself. Yeah, just trying to explain that they probably don't mean harm by it. Just imagine if you had heard about a group of people but had never actually seen them. So try not to take it the wrong way, but at the same time, creating barriers. Like, I actually had to, you know, let a family know, do not take my child away from me like that. Like, that's just disrespectful. It's one thing to say, tap me and, you know, communicate some kind of way, like, can we take a picture? But for me to turn around and not see her. So I would just explain to my children that try not to take it the wrong way, but at the same time, we've all always taught them to know who they are as children, as black children, and how what that that carries sometimes, not just in China, but globally, you know. I'm definitely thinking about like the irony of the zoo um, and the history attached to black bodies, black children being exotified to the point of being put in zoos as exhibits. And you know, while you're observing what we as humans have deemed to be less than us, like an animal that we can put on display is like, we're in here and almost being treated the same way. Like for me, it would be so hard for me to process that and leave out that those centuries of history that had us in those places and not allow it to like interact, you know, in my actual decision going to get my child back from these people because I would have been like, why? <laughs> right, exactly. Like on the streets, it was one thing to um for them to snatch my child. But in the zoo, like you say, I was very taken back by that. Like, you know, hold on now. We, <laughs> we taking pictures of animals and y'all <laughs> taking pictures of us. That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to contextualize, right, it, it's complex in Beijing because China is a huge country and Beijing is a huge tourist destination for Chinese people, right? So many Chinese people come from rural areas where, of course, they have never seen anything but a Chinese person. So yeah. when they come to Beijing, in many ways, it's like they're not only being exposed to the history and to the sights of Beijing, but they're being exposed to the world, right? There's Black people. There's white folks. And so it's this, this interesting, really mix of cultures. And it happens at, at the tourist sites, like the zoo, any, you know, Forbidden City. Anytime we're at any of those locations, yeah. many of our students would really be getting, uh, you know, it, and they take it differently. Some would say harassed. Some would use very different words to explain it. And some of them really liked it. And I think due to the way they experienced race and racism in America and only being in China for a few weeks and not like living out there, they almost felt like good about themselves. Some of them felt like good about the way that they're being treated because they're being like positively acknowledged for their black. Yeah, I could see. Yeah, that's a good, um, you know, resolve for because it wasn't like they were like, oh, you know, it was like, wow, like fascinated. Yeah. And so that's where you could start to be okay with it. Like I remember we were walking from the mall to our hotel and these workers were, you could tell they were from maybe not that part of China, like you said, and they just threw down their, their working equipment and just were like, you know, it was like we were spectacle, like, what is this? And so, so you know, I, I could be mean about it, like, hi, how are you know, making fun of it. But I was just like, hey, how are y'all doing? And they were like, you know, even more like their language. So, you know, trying not to misinterpret just, but trying to put yourself in their shoes and see, wow, if I had seen a group of people who I'd never seen before, what would it feel like? And 
actually, growing up in LA, I do kind of remember the first time seeing a Chinese person as a little girl and being like, wow, what is that? And I shouldn't say that, but I had never been exposed to a person who looked like that. And so I had the same kind of reaction. And I wish I had experienced Chinese culture in China before having grown up in LA, because I used to get in a lot of disputes or combativeness with Asian people because they were always cutting in front of me in line. Or if I'm going through looking through some clothes, they'll come look through the same clothes. Um, excuse me. <laughs> I'm, I'm right here, you know, so a lot of combativeness, but not realizing that's cultural for them and nothing's wrong with it. So when I was there and I was standing in the line to get some stamps at a post office, somebody came and stood right in front of me in line. And I was like, oh yeah, they did tell me this would happen. And I just went and stood right in front of them, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because their lines are, are very different. And you experience it first on the airplane, right? As soon as you lie, everybody gets up and like jams the lines and tries to get to the front and then they just get stuck. Uh-huh. And then it's funny because all the Westerners are sitting there like, hmm, we're just in our chair. And it's interesting. I think one thing about being in Asia is really interesting is I start to identify as a Westerner. Mm-hmm. And even I, I like I, I had developed this American identity abroad. Like I knew what that was, you know, being in like different parts of Africa or Europe. I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I feel very American. But when I went to lived in Korea and in China, I was like, well, I'm a Westerner, like which connected me in a weird way to whiteness. But a lot of the cultural values in which we live in are, are Western and, and European yeah. based. And yeah. for me, it's like, yeah, like that, like the line situation. That could be really stressful, right? If you think somebody is trying to disrespect you, right? Especially if you're Black and you already been getting looked at all day and then you stand in line and somebody jumps in front of you, you're thinking, oh, this is because me and my Blackness and that, that, that. And it, it, it's not, it has right. nothing to do with that. It's exactly. simply the fact that when the person in front of you stepped up four inches, if you didn't step up four inches, it looked like you didn't want to be there. <laughs> Your spot ain't important to you. <laughs> so somebody right. else is going to slide in there. Right. And I understood that in China, but growing up in L.A., I didn't understand that it wasn't because I was Black, per se. I thought they were doing it because I was Black. And so, mm-hmm. you know, issues and arguments and disputes would stir up that probably didn't need to happen if I had known. So before I, before I get past the Javier for his question, I can see him over there like want to ask. I do want to say this, like I grew up in LA too and I grew up in Koreatown. Like part of my life, I grew up right next to Koreatown. And when I, whether I'd be on the bus or just anywhere over there, I always felt like older Korean people would, would look at me like in a you know very disapproving manner and like not trust me and this and that. And when I went and lived in Korea, to your point, I finally better understood why, right? Their their culture, one, is so homogenous, but two, there's such a respect for elders in that country. And there's such like a communal way of building, of being, right? Like everyone's looking out for everyone. And then I can imagine, because I felt it with older Korean people, right? So these folks who grew up in Korea then then came over to the States and they're looking at our culture like, y'all is out of control. You got no respect for your elders. There's no true sense of community here. No one's looking out for each other. So it better it, it allowed me to better make sense of when people kind of looked at me like, oh, I don't necessarily want you near me. Growing up, I thought it was all because of my race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as I went to Korea and lived there, I'm like, I, part of it is definitely race. But also <laughs> part of it is, is a cultural thing. Yeah, um, And I think the way that their, their society is very homogenous and they look after each other and you come to America and it's so diverse and no one's really looking out for people that don't look like them. Um, so I could see why they're like, uh, you shouldn't be in Koreatown. This is for us. You know, like, wow. get uh-huh. out of here. That's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, huh? 
No, I, I'm I'm listening. But while I'm listening, like there's so many things that are just going through my mind because I've had so many similar experience to the ones that you and Thais are talking about and never have set foot in Asia or that part of Asia before. But, and when you say like Western or American identity, I'm like, well, dang, in Latin America, it's so similar, but we're still considered Western. But you know, and like in Cuba, when you go anywhere in Cuba, you have to, when you go to a place where there's a line, there might not even be a line, but there's a, a lot of people. And then you have to say, ¿Quién es el último? Who's the last one? And whoever is like, yo, that's me. That's your position in line. And that person could be sitting on a bench far away, but yeah. you would not go before that person. You have to make, you have to remember that. And Panama's the same thing. When you like, people will leave the grocery store line and go get something out the, out the aisle. And when they come back, they're going to go in front of you. And you're like, what, what you doing, man? Why you trying to? They're like, no, I was here. I was here. You, you, just, you saw me here, right? And like, I just left for a second. But I know <laughs> from like you know, pick up basketball, man. Yeah, we <laughs> interpret that so many different ways, and usually we relate it to something disrespectful that's happening and like respond in that way. So I'm just listening and I'm like, wow, this is like so global and so nuanced. And I think it does lead me into the question that I want to ask Thais in the work that she does with fly, the work you do with fly. Um, I've just been amazed looking at your program from the outside and seeing the holistic development that you do with these young women on campus. For a lot of reasons, I'm particularly drawn to like the spiritual side in development of these young women. And I've seen the programs that you helped initiate in South Africa, particularly with the woman Karen, in that space. So I was just wondering if you could talk to us about what is that holistic development and, and specifically spiritual development that goes so much into the work you do as with young women of color going outside of their borders? And what is that? Why is that important to them? That's a jam-packed question. Um, <laughs> I can write it down, but you know I don't be knowing. <laughs> okay, let me do my best to answer. And if I left something out, just let me know. So when Tiffany or Dr. Lewis and I developed Fly, Fearless Leadership Institute for Black Women, I had the goal in mind of developing their personal life because I feel strongly that you could do well in your academics and your career, but if your personal life is jacked up, it's going to bleed over and impact everything that you do, right? So even for example, if I was pissed off at my husband and I come to the levels, like you can be pissed off and you can just be just like enraged, right? So when I'm enraged at my husband and there's an issue that's pressing and we haven't fleshed it out, when I come to work, it impacts me like I'm not as you know warm I'm not ready to talk to everybody I would rather close my door yada yada so that's why I want to make sure the women are making good choices in their personal lives in their relationship with other people their family their intimate relationships with their relationship with themselves because if you don't like yourself you got a problem because guess what everywhere you go mm. there you are so with yourself and then with your creator, right? So I believe that all of us were created by God. I know everybody doesn't believe that, but I believe that. And I always say that. I say, this may not be your belief, but this is my belief. This was what happened in my life. And if my story can help you in some way, then please take part, you know, take parts of it that you need. But I always share too that if you get a piece of furniture from Ikea, of course it's not put together, right? Um, and if you're putting it together without the directions, it's gonna, say it's a bookshelf, it's gonna be leaning a little bit. You know, this bookshelf behind me ain't from Ikea, it's not leaning. But we have some bookshelves at home from Ikea and all of them have like a little lean to them. You know what I'm saying? Unless you Thanks, put something <laughs> up against it. And if you put something from Ikea or wherever together, a bike or whatever, and you're not looking at the instructions, more than likely, 
you're going to have a few pieces or screws on the side sitting there and you're going to wonder, hmm, those are supposed to go somewhere. I feel it's the same with our life. If I'm trying to live my life and I don't go to the creator for directions, my life is going to be leaning to some degree. It's not going to have all the parts and the components that it should because I'm trying to understand myself through social media, through this person, through that person versus why not just go straight to the creator? Creator. If anybody knows me better, can help me lead my life and live my life to the fullest, it's the person or the being that made me. And so I, we have a particular interest group called Proverbs 31 Woman, where we don't study the book of Proverbs or that chapter in particular, but we study biblical principles in general and applying them to your life um, so that you can become like that woman in Proverbs 31 who is just killing the game. She is a boss, okay? And she's not doing it on her own. She has help. Um, and that's key. You know, a lot of times we think we got to do this on our own, but you got to get help along the way. And you got to live your purpose. If you're trying to live her purpose or his purpose, you're not going to um, succeed. You have to, to live the purpose in you. Um, and how that connects with, let's say, abroad is, you know, don't, don't any um, thing that the students are endeavoring to do, I tell them, don't leave your, your belief in the, in the shadows. Take God with you wherever you go. You know what I'm saying? A lot of times we get people, students are raised with God and, and they get to college and they get buck wild. They'd be like, forget about that, you know? Or you get to overseas and you'd be like, oh, we're going to be living it up over here. Forget about that. No, make sure God is a part of everything that you do, you know, leading you and directing you because he wants what's best for you. And you, can't, and you can have fun with God. People think, you know, God puts you in a box. Are there guidelines and parameters and instructions? Yeah, but they're for your benefit. If I could jump in. So you, part of your relationship to God is what helped you create your relationship with Kyron and Bethel Projects for Women in yep. uh, the Cape Flat, South Africa. So she does amazing work. Her late husband, Johannes, they did amazing work together. Can you talk to me a little bit about that relationship and what you've learned from your, at this point, what, eight, nine-year relationship with Karen? Mm -hmm. So we met uh, Karen and Johannes our first year in South Africa. Every student, every group of students is like, we break them up and they have a couple leaders go to a different part in the Cape Flats of Cape Town and our particular assignment was to go to Bethel Projects for Women. And Karen and Johannes lead it. And they feed children, they feed the um, people who are homeless, they help women who have been abused and battered and all that stuff. And her work was just, I mean, powerful. And they know everybody from parliament to the, gang the, lead the head gangster over there, right? So, and everybody in between. So if you wanna take a tour of parliament and have lunch over there, they'll hook you up with that. If you want to ride and, and, and get some, what's that drug they use over the there? Tick. Tick. Yeah, if you want to get some tick, they know where to help you find that, right? Um, they're just connected, and the people in the community respect them and love them, and we grew to respect and love them well. Karen is like my sister now. Um, they invited me and some other women back over to help lead one of their um, conferences for women. So... You know, we talk about women being battered and abused and things like that globally, but in South Africa, it's just, it's rough. They rape women and leave them out in a field just to die. Um, and one woman in particular, while we were there, she shared her story that happened to her. And she had been sexually abused from childhood 
then experienced rape, but her story of recovery and restoration and just the power she exudes, it's just the people they're in connection with are just like, you know, game changers. And how would you say some of, how would you say that those lessons that you learned over there has informed some of the work that you do here at UT with Fly? Um, just, they have a lot of the same issues, you know? Like I would say there seems to be deeper and heavier in the sense that it's rampant. It just seems like it's, it seemed like every woman I talked to had a, a story, mm. you know, of trauma and abuse. And a lot of the women I work with in Fly have been molested or raped or abused by their parent or something like that. Um, so it just, the stories are very similar. Um, and how it informs it is just that this work is necessary. You know, don't, when you get tired, keep, you know, take a, take a little rest, <laughs> but get back up and keep doing what you're doing because they need it. And, you know, me myself having experienced some of those things in my childhood of molestation and abuse um, sexual abuse, I know that this was my calling, so to speak, to be there for the women and say, look how I overcame. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it makes me think about as well, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the idea that like all Black Lives Matter and like global Black Lives Matter. And sometimes I think we get it's easy for us to, you know, to look at the bubble that we live in and here in America and look at it the various ways in which Black folks are disenfranchised and wanting to do more, uh, and yet still be unaware of the, in many ways, the relative privilege that we have over certain Black bodies in other places and how Black people, it doesn't matter where you're at in the world, are facing challenges, right? And are facing like institutionalized racism and oppression. Um, and you know, whenever I go to, to South Africa, I guess I'm, I'm like reminded of that. Um, and I think somebody said that somebody said something to me one time. They were like, you know, if the U.S. gets a cold, right, and people are struggling in the U.S., it's like South Africa has the flu, and we really struggle. And I think you know, in COVID right now and talking with Kyron and trying to help her raise some money and her sending me pictures and videos of the stuff they're doing, you know, 300, 400 people outside their house a day lining up to get food. Um, it's crazy, right? Um, it, it's crazy. But Tais, can you, you started this initiative, Fly Around the World, right? Um, you, you provide scholarship dollars every year, thousands of dollars to women to get them you know, abroad, get them around the world. It seems like uh, international education has become one of the staples that you all push within FLY. And, and I'm wondering why, right? Why do you think that's important to get these women abroad? And how do you feel like it's impacting them? It's important because first, if you look at um, Black people in college, so Black men and women make up 13.1%. This was a study done a few years ago. 13.1% of college attendance but only 6% of global studies. So that's, that's way off. We need to at least be 13% of them studies if, of global studies, if not more. Um, because of the exposure um, is just so important. Students talk about how when they come back and they have an interview for an internship or a job, once the, the interviewer sees South Africa or China or wherever on their resume, that's where the conversation goes. And immediately it's like, 
it just opened up a whole new door for them. I remember one student said they were, they had never even considered studying abroad and they were sitting in Dr. Moore's class. And he said, if you and your, your peer have the same resume, but one of them has study abroad in South Africa on it, who's going to get the job? And she said a light bulb went off and she realized that she had to go. Um, so just the exposure and the experience and the tools that you pick up abroad um, are so important. I remember one young lady, she's of African descent, she's Nigerian, and she went to South Africa with us. Um, and she said that it was the first time in her life she felt beautiful. Mm. Um, and so that really stuck with me because I, you know, in fly, that's one of the things we try to make sure they know, especially the the more darker skinned girls, you know, really deal with being in America and feeling they're never beautiful enough. They're too dark, they're, you know, to this. And just, I constantly tell them, and I know I'm light skinned, so it might be in one ear and out the other, but your skin is gorgeous, baby. That is God made and it's just flawless and people wish they could have it. But hearing that and hearing that, but just actually feeling it, you know, being in South Africa and seeing so many people who looked like her and people looking at her and telling, giving her compliments, she said she believed it. Um, so that stuck with me. Um, so the confidence boosting that it does, the reassurance of your humanity that it does, exposure, um, being emotion, more emotionally intelligent and realizing the world is not just about you, um, realizing that, you know, the, literally the sky is the limit. You know, all of those things are, are so important for the student to gain. Thank you. Thank you. And um, how does it, in many ways, you and your husband, right, Dr. Moore, in many ways, you all have kind of become the face of, of Black UT, right? What is that, what, what does that responsibility hold for you? Um, in terms of the way you carry yourself and and also right like the things that you encourage them to invest their money in um what, what does that mean for you wow that's a good question so i think especially when times sometimes you know in a marriage things can get challenging sometimes there's seasons where it's beautiful and it's romantic and it's lovely and then there's seasons where it's like oh my gosh what is this you know that's just real being a leader amongst us in front of the students and always talking to them about me and my husband's desires and adventures and goals during those rough patches you know when you're like what is this in my marriage knowing that the students are looking at us it's like okay we got to work through whatever this is because we got a lot of people counting on us mm-hmm. a lot of people um looking up to us and so that is that amongst other things is one of the reasons why I feel like my marriage in itself is thriving because we know we have people who are counting on us and I don't want to be counterfeit. You know, I don't want to be a fake. I'm not a hypocrite. If I was walking out of this meeting, it would be like my husband is getting on my last nerve, you know, because I don't want to make it seem like we have this perfect story or life. When we're, you know, we're human too. We experience the hard things in life. Um, So that helps. There was another part of your question that I forgot. Have you got some? Only thing that I really want to know is what's next? Like, where do we see fly and fly around the world doing next? Like, what's, what's, what can we expect? 
Well, we're trying to be on y'all's level. We want to expand and reach more women, and we know the way to do that is through a podcast. Um, we want Fly to be on every predominantly white institu institution's campus in the U.S. Um, I remember I told one of my colleagues that one day, and it, you know, I knew having a Fly at every campus would take a long time, but his response was, oh, the 500-year plan. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Um, so knowing that my goal outlives me is inspiring, but wanting to have something like fly at every campus, because I have so many women, like 40, 50, 60 years old, say, wow, where was fly when I was at school? So I know it's needed, you know. Um, as far as globally, I just pray that this pandemic um, does not, affect that to the point where we can't go global, you know? And I know hopefully eventually we'll open up, but it's a matter of how long and things like that. Um, I hope that this wave of students who are in school now don't miss that opportunity, you know, because I know we had a lot of fly students ready to go to South Africa, Costa Rica, Dubai this past summer that hopefully before they graduate, it'll come back around for them. And, um, Last question I have uh, as we wrap up is you've traveled, clearly you all spend a lot of money every year, multiple times a year to take your kids abroad, right? And you've been doing it since they were what, seven, eight years old. They have a lot of international experience. Um, why do you think it's so important or do you think it's important for young Black American children to go abroad? And if you do, why? Hmm. Um, very important, yes. Um, so one, we don't mind spending the money because we don't really buy our children a lot of things. You know, we don't spoil them in that sense, but we'd rather spoil them with experiences. Um, and so one, it creates a lot of good family time for us. We're with each other 24-7 on those trips. Um, in fact, when we get back, it's like we need the relief, the space from each other but we also start missing each other, you know? So it brings us together as a family, a lot of good laughs, a lot of good memories. And two, I don't think black students have the exposure to just life and other people and other cultures and other experiences like they should. And I think that sometimes is what is prohibiting us from, not, I mean, I know racism is a uh, key, but sometimes prohibiting us from maybe having the opportunities and open doors that some other people have because of maybe our closed-mindedness or lack of experiences to be able to shed light on a situation um, or to offer a different aspect of it. And so the more of those experiences we have, the more when we're sitting at the table, we're not just sitting there, but we're contributing. Thank you, thank you. If you had one word, I know this is tough, to sum up your international experiences or to describe your international experiences? What, what would you say? Ooh, uh, one word. Um, okay, you threw me off, you threw me on the spot. One word, just, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, three words, right. keep doing it. Just Keep doing it. Yeah, I wanna go everywhere. You know, I feel like most of our spots have been South Africa and, China. And I know on the way there, we'll stop at different places and do different things, other cities, other countries. But I just want to see it all. That's just that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so no. very much for being thank here you. on our podcast. Uh, 
We is excited no. to have you, excited to talk to you. Um, thank you for the incredible work that you do with Fly, with your family, for really being a role model out there for, you know, not just undergrads, for grad students, for faculty and staff about, um, with you know, with your all's openness, mm -hmm. with you all's desire to always put students first. Mm -hmm. uh, we appreciate it. The campus appreciates it. So thank you for that. Yes, thank yes, you. Can thank I you. say one one thing? Yeah. You made me, um, first, thank you all for the work that you do. And y'all are killing the game. Um, students love you. Just your realness and your authenticity is, is so empowering. But you just made me, when you said something, made me think that about um, our first trip to China, there was a young lady there. And when we got back, she said, Miss Thais, you and your husband and children are the first black family or the first black marriage that I've ever experienced. She said, nobody in my family is married. Nobody, everybody's either single, divorced, broken up or something. And I've never seen that. Um, and that was back in 2013. She just got married this year. Um, they have a kid together and she's doing well. She's an accountant. She's um, getting her CPA right now. And I'm just so, I look at where she was with guys back then to, you know, being married now and how she said that we made that change in her life. And I'm just like. That's beautiful. Well, mm -hmm. if, 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 if she's anything like I believe her to be, um, I know she's telling the truth. And, I, and I'll say this as a child who grew up, who, a child of an educator who every time, I was in a public space in Austin and people found out I was Mr. Wallace's son because my dad's an educator in AISD for a long time. You know, that's how you tell if a person is doing a good job because they're not going to lie to me because it's yeah. Mr. Wallace more so. If he, they have something negative to say, they're going to tell it to me because they know I can directly say, but oh, Mr. Wallace, that's your daddy? Oh, I love him. Oh, he's on this. He was strict, but he was fair. All these different things. And, and I say that because I know when that young woman said, Miss Thais, y'all did this, is the same way I understand that because when I interact with students on campus, it's always, I love Miss Thais. Oh, Miss Thais this, oh, Miss Thais that. And I think that is a real indicator of the work that you're doing and how impactful it is because those young people are gonna be screaming Miss Thais from here until who knows when mm -hmm. about the impactful things in their lives that you've done and I just, really am happy as always to sit and listen more than talk when I interact with you because that's how impacted that I am. But like I say, from the outside looking in, I've received so much. I just thank you for being here and I can't wait to hear more stories about Miss Thais because Miss <laughs> Thais is doing it. I'm serious. That's what they call you. Miss Thais? Oh, Miss Thais. Yes, Miss Thais. <laughs> and that's amazing because that is what I feel how we can really gauge the impact that we make in our communities is when other people talk about that person to somebody they don't know from a can of paint and don't got one negative thing to say about them. Wow. That's you. So thank, thank you, you for joining you. us. We really appreciate it. And I'm just always, yeah, let's do that. Thank you all so much. Yeah. And as we close out, can you just let, let the, uh, the audience know where they can follow you, maybe fly on social media or anything, get more information? Um, sure. So Instagram, you can follow us on at fly, at F-L-I underscore U-T. Um, I have an Instagram page for the book. It's at syllabus for black women, the number four at syllabus for black women. Or if you want to follow me, I'm at Ty Bass Mo. 
T I B A S S Mo. Um, yeah. All right. And that does it. All right. Thank you, Miss Tice. I appreciate y'all. We appreciate you. Okay. All right now. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. A special shout out goes out to our production team, Sophia Leal and Sydney Cox. Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.